hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory. Uh, you're used to hearing Grant Pemberton make those introductions. This week only, Grant could not join us, and uh, we had a difficult enough time scheduling our guest today that I thought I'll just go ahead and both be the interviewer as well as the master of ceremonies. And so um, I'm really pleased to have Derek Morphew uh, joining us on the podcast today. Derek goes way back into the last millennium. Uh, he was there yeah. for a lot of the early moves of the spirit involving uh, not only John Wimber, but um, independently with Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, he's a theologian. He's a pastor. He's a writer. Um, he's a great thinker. And um, he brings a lot of perspectives that are often difficult to find in this uh, charismatic world. So Derek, welcome to the show. It's great having you on with us. Thank you. So, um, you know, one of the things I normally do whenever we have a guest on our show is I'll have that individual share a little bit about uh, their own journey to faith, um, how they got saved, um, and even more than that, how did they end up in the ministry? You know, I think the story of being called by God is itself fascinating, and it's as varied as the individuals who are called by God. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about that, just to give our listeners some context. Okay, so I grew up on the north coast of South Africa, going towards the Mozambican border in a subtropical climate, and my father was the owner of a sugarcane farm, and I grew up as a son of a farmer. Um, apart from sugarcane, we had bush and a river with crocodiles and black mambas in the bush. And my first playmates were Indians because people may not know, but where I grew up is the largest concentration of Indians outside of India. And uh, Gandhi grew up near where I lived. He mm. was a South African attorney. And my first playmate was a guy called Balakrishna Naidu. And I grew up with, you know, our family doctor was an Indian, you know, in the Indian community. But also in a Zulu-speaking environment. So I grew up speaking Zulu fluently and English with an Indian accent if I wanted to. I could switch between my parents' accent and Balakrishna's accent. So very multicultural society. And I landed up at a boarding school, Episcopal Anglican High Church boarding school, uh, probably the most expensive school in our country, where we had chapel every day. And it, it didn't go down well with me. You know, I was yeah. a surfer and a farmer's son. And so I was a, I would say, a real pagan Anglican at an Anglican boarding school. And probably the best known evangelist South Africa has ever produced called Michael Cassidy, mm -hmm. who had been to that school, had his first ever school mission. And I had never heard the gospel presented before, clearly. 
And so I had a crisis conversion. Um, so I changed so much that my father wanted me to be taken to a psychologist, but uh, he later found the Lord as well. And a few months after my conversion experience, I was in the dormitory uh, late at night and I heard God speak to me, let's say more clearly than I probably have ever heard since then. And he told me I was not going to become a farmer. I was not going to study what I thought I was going to study. I was going to spend the rest of my life preaching the word of God. And he gave me a kind of prediction, like a prophetic word that I would preach to the schools. Now, this high church Episcopal school, I don't think any schoolboy had ever preached in the chapel before me. And I don't know if anybody has ever done that since. And apart from, you know, starting to meet with a whole lot of us con got converted, probably 20 or 30. And I started going around gathering them and we started a home group in the rector's home. And lo and behold, a year later, the, the new headmaster, and by then I was what you call head prefect. I don't know what you call that in America, but um, got a hold of me and said, Morphew, I want you to preach in the chapel to the church, to the school. And so my first ever sermon was in front of 400 schoolboys and the whole staff. But it kind of showed me that I had really heard from God about my calling and uh, I started talking to my parents and this this threw them a lot but very graciously they said well what do you want to do and at that stage if you were going to study for the Anglican priesthood as they would call it there was a university called Rhodes University with a theological faculty that trained Methodists, Anglicans, and Presbyterians. And so my parents paid for me to do a bachelor's degree there. And um, I studied, you know, in the beginning, supposedly for the Anglican ministry. But when I got there, I found it very difficult to adapt to the cathedral and the other Anglican theological students didn't seem to have had the kind of conversion experience I had. and. I went to the Student Christian Association. Would you call it a, a Christian union, like a university um, yeah. Christian thing? Yeah. And apart from some pretty, girl, pretty girls that I followed, I landed up at this Assemblies of God Church and entered into an environment of people speaking in tongues and prophesying. And I had never experienced anything like that before. And I realized they had something I didn't have. So I heard about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and I started seeking this and getting people to pray for me and nothing happened for months. And I came to the conclusion that I just wasn't chosen by God to, you know, become a charismatic. <laughs> and uh, to do theology as a major you had to study a year of philosophy and the philosophy professors 
Jesus. Were ex-theological students who'd lost their faith studying philosophy. Yeah. And they were trying to help us lose our faith as well. And I think it's one of God's little jokes that I was sitting in a philosophy class one day and having been praying for months to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden it was like fire was poured out from heaven over my whole body. While you were in a philosophy class. Yeah. And I didn't do anything weird. I just, you know, waited for the bell to ring and I went back to my dormitory room and like a good little Anglican meltdown next to my bed and uh, started speaking in tongues and had an experience of joy and so on and I remember after that going to the lunch you know you when you're in a residence you always sort of sit with the same friends at lunch and they started looking at me and saying Morphew what's happened to you the one guy said have you got engaged and I said, no, I haven't got engaged. But they could obviously see something on me. And so I started, you know, experiencing the whole realm of the charismatic gifts and so on in this Pentecostal church. And um, that's where I did my bachelor's degree in theology. So I think that's question one, basically, um, Ken. Let me ask you a question, though. You said something really interesting. Um, it was required uh, as part of your training for the Anglican ministry to get a year of training in philosophy. And the people who were teaching philosophy were basically ordinands who had lost their faith along the way. What, what was the magisterium thinking in taking fresh-faced, eager, zealous, committed consecrated young ordinands themselves and subjecting them to this kind of training. I mean, that's like pouring battery acid on a nice yeah. piece of, I don't know, metal, um, wondering what the impact will be on the metal. I suppose more and more people who go through that kind of training, as we might call it, end up losing their faith. Did, did anybody see any kind of a contradiction in that method of pedagogy? Well, let me explain. The sort of seminary part of it was a residence in the university campus run by the Anglicans, Methodists, and Presbyterians. But the university itself was a liberal arts university. So there was no expectation that you were going to get, get like nurtured in the faith from the university. And because of the nature of systematic theology, it was expected that you studied philosophy as a first year subject to do systematic theology second and third year. And so, you know, the next university I went to, the University of Cape Town was equally a liberal arts college. And although my tutor for my doctoral thesis was a lovely evangelical guy. I mean, another guy on the faculty was a Marxist, you know. So um, I, I went through very liberal theological training and we argued our way through the whole degree. Um, that's another whole story, but um, that, that's really what was going on there. And a lot of theological students who came to the university 
lost their faith at that university. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. I, not identical, but I had a, I would say analogous situation at Princeton. Um, when I went there, I didn't go to the seminary, I went to the university. And not everybody knows, but Princeton Seminary was formed in 1812 in essentially protest and reaction against the departure of the university from the training of what were then known as new light ministers, essentially born again ministers. And so there was again, this sort of overweening uh, liberal bias that had crept in at the university. And by the time I got there, of course, it was nothing like the 17 or 1800s. It was the late 1900s. But um, anyway, uh, within the Department of Religion and the F Department of Philosophy, uh, there were some people who may have had some Christian faith. I think a couple of our professors were pretty solid. They were the last Christians, though, in Princeton's religion and philosophy departments. All that's there now are people who make no profession of faith, or if they have anything, it tends to be some sort of very liberal, um, postmodern, uh, sort of oriented towards Paul Tillich or, you know, yeah. Boltmann kind of something like that. And so a lot of students that were wanting to learn something about religion would take classes at, in Princeton's religion or philosophy departments and almost to a person, uh, as, as they might say in a war zone, the attrition rate was near 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, Bultmann was New Testament mother's milk for us, you know. Yeah, yeah. The whole demythologizing thing is, uh, it's a major meme in modern theology. A lot of our listeners wouldn't necessarily be attuned to these names or to that approach to theology but really i would say everything that the vineyard everything that the supernatural paradigm everything that a john wimber or a paul kane or a lonnie frisbee or bob jones or a blaine cook or you just go right down the list this this exactly flies in the face of everything that boltman and similar people um, were attempting to write and so it, it, it's a clash of worldviews, but I really believe it's a clash of kingdoms. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's uh, let's go on with this uh, with this conversation. So you're known very widely in the vineyard movement, um, and you talked about the training that you went through theologically. Now, having gone through it and survived it, and again, not many do, but you did. Uh, they have, we have a saying in the U.S., that which does not kill you makes you stronger. So <laughs> uh, today you're, you know, you're extremely well known as an articulate spokesman of the kingdom of God and what I would call a kingdom paradigm. Um, you obviously do believe in the supernatural. What drew you into theology, um, especially after an ordeal, an intellectual ordeal, such as you had to go through? What you know, what, what, what did you think uh, the Lord was going to do with you? And has your expectation been met or did things end up going in a different direction? Well, you know, as a result of going to that church, I landed up being ordained as an Assemblies of God pastor. And my first church was in Cape Town as an Assemblies of God pastor. 
I think I should just tell you a story that explains a little bit. Um, I was at school with a, a guy called Burnett, whose father had been at that same school with my father. You know, these high Anglican boarding schools, there's like a family tradition, you, the same families. And the older Burnett had run long distance races against my father and been defeated by him. And so when I arrived at the school, the young Burnett announced to me that I was a long distance runner and proceeded to train me to run long distance. Um, it gives you an idea of this tradition of families. And when I got to this Assemblies of God Church at Rhodes University, the local bishop was the same Burnett who'd been at school with my father. He was the Anglican bishop. And he was very upset because there were three or four of us who arrived from Michael House, this famous school, and they all hoped we'd become Anglican priests. And we all landed up in this Assemblies of God church instead. And he told us afterwards that he prayed a prayer and he said, God, whatever's causing these Michael House boys to land up in this funny church, I need to know even if I have to speak in tongues, because he obviously knew, you know, it was a Pentecostal church. And a while later, he was hosting a couple in the bishop's residence, which had a chapel built on the side, side of it, at lunchtime, pouring them a gin and tonic, which sounds like a very sort of Anglican bishop thing to do. <laughs> and he was seized with a need to pray. Huh. And he excused himself and went into the chapel and was knocked on the floor and lay there speaking in tongues. Wow. And the next year he was made the archbishop of the whole country. And what he did was he got his personal chaplain, which is like your special assistant to the bishop. And he said to him, you will worship in this Pentecostal church for two years and you will learn everything you can from them where I was then in that church and I became friends with the bishop's chaplain. I then got my first pastorate in a kind of church plant in Cape Town, the same year that he became the archbishop. And what he would do is he would get a whole lot of Anglican clergy away on a retreat. And half of them were now charismatic speaking in tongues and they'd all come back speaking in tongues. And so what began was known as the charismatic renewal in the Anglican church in South Africa. And it swept through the whole Anglican church. And one of my professors, a church history professor, was also, he later became an Anglican bishop. He then started speaking in tongues. And one of my systematic theology lecturers also started speaking in tongues. Wow. So it was just because I was there. But I think the fact that the archbishop got kind of, you know, filled with the spirit and, and the repercussions of that in the university. And I remember my, my systematic professor, systematic theology professor, who was an Australian, very brilliant man. He said to me, Morphew, you are the first student I have ever taught who is glossolalic, he was Australian. 
He'd never met a speaking in tongues um, student before. So I found myself at the beginning of the charismatic movement in South Africa, right in the core of it. And the other interesting thing is that uh, this Assemblies of God movement I was part of was like 95% black. And the leader of it, the main leader was a guy called Bengu, Nicholas Bengu, a tall Zulu evangelist who like planted a thousand churches in South Africa. And I'd go to conferences where, I mean, the power of God on this man, you know, his evangelistic campaigns would have piles of crutches left behind of the lame who'd gone and walked home. So I had this dual experience of a Pentecostal movement that was like an African independent church, very filled with the spirit and the birth of the charismatic movement in South Africa. Wow. So, you know, Bultmann didn't do well in an environment <laughs> like that. <laughs> I like that. I, I, in my opinion, um, I guess to be erudite, we need to read him and be aware of his thinking. But, you know, this is a broad sweeping statement, which can be dangerous. But I think Boltman and similar people, honestly, just they just need to be taken out with the trash. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, Wimber used to say, don't argue with them, just do it to them. And yeah. all you need is, is somebody to experience a prophetic gift or a healing. And a lot of theology collapses pretty quickly if it's that kind of theology. Yeah, that's right. That's very well put. You know, one of the things that's interesting about what you said, um, of course, I, I not only have theological training, I have a master's of business administration and I was, you know, in big corporate environments for about 25 years. Um, one of the things that they don't really teach in seminaries at all, uh, maybe in some missiology programs that have some sort of an emphasis on leadership, they might talk about this a bit, but in business schools, in military schools, et cetera, uh, they really do emphasize this a lot. And that is that everything rises and falls on leadership. And mm -hmm. so you know, when you mention this thing that happened to the archbishop, um, that's not to say it's automatic or guaranteed that everything will be fine from there. But one thing, sure, if you have an archbishop that's liberal and opposed to this, nothing much is going to happen on that watch. But yeah. if you get somebody like that who is touched by the spirit, filled with the spirit, and who, shall we say, gets it, as we say here in the U.S., then at least there's a fighting chance uh, for this to open up and become more widespread, such as you were describing. And so with that, you know, I think it's just extremely important that we be very discerning, um, can I say selective without sounding somehow discriminatory, about who we put into positions of leadership within the church. I just wanted to say one little other anecdote. Bengu, who I mentioned, there are books about him. And some decades earlier, there was a genuine revival that took place around his ministry. And in the main city, that was the center where it happened. So many um, converts brought their stolen goods to the police station and started reporting all their theft crimes, that eventually the magistrate said to the police, 
tell them all to go away. I'm canceling all their dockets and uh, try and give back the goods because there were huge piles of stolen goods at the police stations. And basically the prosecutorial part of the justice system collapsed under the weight of repenting converts in this revival. And that's you documented know, that so history. funny. Although I'm aware, for example, in the Hebrides revival, basically they ended up they ended up closing the jails and letting all the policemen go because they didn't need them. Now, years later, of course, sin, as it were, started to rise again. Sin came back. And then they needed police once again, and they needed courts and so forth. But for many years, it was it wasn't wasn't necessary, and it's almost impossible for us to conceptualize exactly. a society like that. It happened in the Welsh revival as well. They they um, there was nobody on in the prisons, you know. So yeah. this was a part of South Africa, a sort of provincial area, but it's documented. You know, it really happened. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love that. Well, we need those kinds of stories to get out because I think what it does is it uh, it shows us what's possible. You know, we say with God, all things are possible. But sometimes when we say these things, people kind of look at you like, yeah, you, you know, you've been smoking something or you've had a little too much wine. Yeah. Uh, but but, you know, this kind of wine is a good wine to have. These are not drunk, as you suppose. That's that's all kind of background. Um, John Wimber shows up in South Africa in uh, 1981. He had been in England the previous year. And talk to us a little bit about, first of all, your understanding of how those meetings came about. And I know it was, um, the, the Anglican channel was very active in passing the word from England down to South Africa. But talk to us a little bit about those human dynamics because they always say the kingdom uh, runs along relational lines. And then, you know, what was it like, uh, those meetings, to be there as a participant um, in 1981, which is, what, 42 years ago now? This is, uh, this is oral history we're collecting from you. <laughs> so just to get our chronology right, yeah. when they came in 81, the archbishop who started the charismatic movement in South Africa, we're talking 1973. Okay. So long before New Wine was ever conceived of, there was a charismatic Anglican archbishop in South Africa. Got it. So the third movement that I got sort of landed in almost simultaneously is when I got my first pastoral appointment in Cape Town, there had just been the Jesus People movement in Cape Town. And there were thousands of young people all over the city of Cape Town. So I, I arrive into this, and this bishop arrives into, so the charismatic movement and the Jesus people revival are sort of almost happening, well, they are happening simultaneously. And just a, you know, amusing story, the sort of hippie started getting converted at a, at a store in the, in the center of the city and went looking for a church. And there was this Assemblies of God church and they'd been praying for revival. And on a certain Sunday, I think a hundred hippies walked in, went and took up the first two rows. The girls weren't wearing bras. They didn't have shoes. 
they put their feet on the row in front of them, the pew in front of them. <laughs> and the this is a this is a church where they're still wearing ties. You know, they still like formally dressed. And it was a terrible shock. And the elders wanted to expel all these hippies, but the pastor had wisdom to say, we were praying for revival. And now it walked in the door. We've never had so many young people suddenly arrive and you don't want it. And so I landed up in a, in a group of Assemblies of God churches where there was a, just a run on church planting to house all these converts. And Lonnie came looking for the footprint of the Jesus people revival. Mm. And this is now mid to late 70s, before Wimber ever came here. And he had been to Scandinavia and he landed up um, in, in a church in Pretoria, a charismatic Baptist church, where it so happened, my sister-in-law was a member. And he wanted to come to Cape Town because he'd heard about all the hippie converts in Cape Town. And he was looking for a pastor to host him. So I got this phone call saying, there's this wild guy who does very unorthodox things. He walks across the pews and he lays hands on people, but there's a lot of power going on. And he wants somebody to host him in, Southern, in Cape Town. Will you host him? So I said, sure. So Lonnie arrives and stays in our home. And I said to him, Lonnie, would you speak at our church on Sunday morning? So he says, sure. And then a day later, this was like middle of the week. He says, when am I going to meet the pastor? Because, you know, the pastors don't like me very often. So I said, Lonnie, I am the pastor. He said, you're not the pastor. You don't look like a pastor. You don't talk like a pastor. You don't behave like a pastor. So we're literally driving to the meeting and he's still asking very nervously, when am I going to meet the pastor? He just didn't believe me at all. And I guess when he saw I was leading the meeting, he finally believed I was the pastor. And um, he preached a, a sermon, not very long. And then he said something like, now we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And he said, call all the children 12 years and younger. So they brought them, you know, from the Sunday school. And he said, let them stand in the middle of the room. And I suppose there were about 20, you know, early teens, um, but younger than that. And he, he prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. Well, three hours later, some of those kids had to be carried into the cars because they were out under the power of God. Some of them started pogoing up and down. Um, they were speaking in tongues. They were falling down. And then all the parents started weeping because they saw what was happening to their kids. And there are two people in the ministry today in, in our country that were teenagers in those meetings and they became pastors in other words it wasn't just a a once-off experience it was a life-changing experience and so Lonnie started visiting Cape Town 
sort of every second year with a group of friends. And that's where John Rutke comes in. He would be one of them. And they would generally stay in our home. And my wife would cook lots of pasta and we'd have meetings. And, you know, my kids grew up with this group of seven or eight people sitting around our dining room table and Lonnie telling Holy Spirit stories. So we became friends. And I must say, I had never seen, now you know my story. I, I was, you know, charismatic in the Pentecostal church, seen all these things, but I'd never seen that level of power encounter. Yeah. And so we developed this relationship and I would host him a few times. And then he started saying to me, you sound like my pastor. You must meet my pastor. And his pastor was John Wimber. And so it wasn't actually the year later, the trip that John took with those 50 young people to England, where he went to Chorleywood, David Pitchers, and out of that New Wine was born, and he went to HTB, and out of that Alpha was born. They literally got on the plane from England and flew to South Africa. And I hosted that team in Cape Town. And we had meetings where, you know, Frisbee and Wimber and 50 young people. And, you know, at that stage, I think the average age of Wimber's congregation was 19 years old. Yeah. And these were all kids, you know, and we're still in a church, even though there's been the Jesus People Revival, where there's quite a lot of Pentecostal formality. And these kids are walking around, you know, in Nikes, chewing gum and walking up to people and operating in prophetic words and healing is happening. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is falling. Yeah, it, it was just real revival phenomena. And that's when I got to know John Wimber through being introduced by Lonnie Frisbee. And I'll just tell you one story because this couple, after this developed an international ministry, they were the, she was the daughter of the founder of the Assemblies of God in South Africa who were very conservative, almost Victorian. And she and her husband came to the meetings and was very skeptical. And it had a, it, it could seat about 1,500 people and it had a, a gallery up top. So she and her husband went and sat in the back row of the gallery, as far away from the action as possible. When ministry time started, Lonnie was called up by John Wimber. He used to do that in those days, hand over to Lonnie. And she started shaking under the power of God. Her hands started shaking. So she put them under her, under her buttocks, you know, to stop them. And then the whole bench started shaking. And um, she was wearing a, a, a head covering because that was the teaching. And Lonnie stopped ministering to all the people in front of him. And he pointed right to the back of the gallery, said, that woman over there, come down here. And so she came forward with her husband and they started giving prophetic words to him and he started weeping. And from that day, they became a, like itinerant prophetic ministries that went all over the world, Indonesia, Philippines. Um, so just another story of Lonnie's um, influence. 
I would say, I mean, Wimba used to teach a bit, but he would sit on the keyboard and lead the worship. And there was a level of something going on in that worship that we'd never experienced before. And then he'd call Lonnie Frisbee up to the front. And then Lonnie would start doing ministry time. And it was like astonishing what happened. So, yeah. 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 I've often said when describing a Lonnie Frisbee meeting that you kind of have to see it to believe it. Um, yeah. You kind of run out of superlatives and after a while people think you're just going on and on or worse, making it up. And uh, yeah. yeah, every now and then I have meetings that approximate that, but, but they're not all the time. Um, Brian does too, Brian Blount. And yeah. Blaine Cook uh, does when he's ministering. He doesn't do as much ministry these days. But uh, so there are a few people around who caught something from Lonnie. But there's only one Lonnie. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, I have to ask you this question, Derek. Uh, you're from South Africa. You've seen these moves of God um, affecting the Anglicans, but then more broadly, you know, the hippies and, and what you described sounds a lot like what is portrayed in the movie that came out uh, in February, The Jesus Revolution. Um, the whole you know, scene inside of Calvary Chapel, I remember being in the building. I remember Chuck Smith preaching. I remember Lonnie ministering. I was kind of at the tail end of the Jesus People revival. I wasn't a key player or anything, but I was, I was present and accounted for. Um, so lots of similarity and overlap between what you saw there in South Africa, what we saw in the United States. Um, but I want to ask you a specific question about South Africa. South Africa seems to have a history of revivalism. Um, John Lake in particular, uh, you know, he famously left his uh, everything really in the U.S., went to South Africa with, I think he had nine kids, uh, made the crossing by ship because you didn't really travel by air in the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, he saw amazing things happen there. What is it about that nation, that land? You know, a lot of, there's a lot of places in scripture that reference the land. What do you think drives that, that part of the world, but specifically the political nation known as South Africa, but collectively the tribes within it, as well as the whites that have gone there uh, to farm and build their lives, whether they be Dutch or British or whatever, what, what do you think drives that? Why is South Africa such a fertile ground for revival? Yeah, I, that's a question I haven't thought a lot about. You know, you have to go back to uh, the history of our missionaries. Obviously, the gospel came here with missionaries. And you, you have a, a quite a large development of what are called African independent churches that are um, not the historic denominations, but they are born out of that. And um, Bengu that I was telling you about really led an independent African movement. Um, the early Pentecostal revival arrived here with, as you said, there was John G. Lake and those guys, and, and it grew rapidly. We have had a lot of division in this country, division first between the British colonial powers and the indigenous um, Dutch and German and French settlers called the Afrikaans community. 
and there was a bitter civil war called the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War. Yeah. British literally burnt the farms and put the women in concentration camps. And one of the moves of the spirit was straight after that war, evangelist preaching and ex-soldiers from both sides finding Christ together in a kind of beginning of a reconciliation. And then another big part of our history was Andrew Murray. He was um, a reformed pastor, Dutch Reformed Church in Cape Town. And he heard about the Welsh revival and he started praying for revival. And revival, one day the Holy Spirit fell in his church in a, in a town about an hour's drive from where I live called Willington. I mean, I can quickly tell the story. He'd been praying for revival. It was a, it was a young people's meeting and a young woman of color. And remember, later on, we were divided black and white in our churches. She read a, a verse from the psalm. And the Holy Spirit fell on the meeting and knocked everybody on the floor. And they, they're all young people. And they called Murray and said, what's going on? And he got very upset. And he started ringing the church bells to try and get them out of their stupor. And of course, he couldn't do anything about it. And then the same sort of thing happened. God said to him, well, you prayed for revival and now it's come and now you don't like it. For a few decades, every church, whether it was Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, was just chock, chock, chock a block in, in, the, in the Cape. And then you get the Pentecostal revival happening with John G. Lake and the black-white division uh, led to a major sort of repentance that had to happen where the sort of white church had to repent of their support for apartheid. And so there's been a whole lot of pain, but a lot of reconciliation happening in the history of our church. And the other thing I would say is we're the interface of the Western world and the, and, and the African continent. So we're a little bit of Europe and we're a little bit of Africa. Mm. And there's something about where those cultures meet. And to be a South African is to be a very multicultural person. And you know, the majority world and the African continent, they open to the supernatural. Yeah. Um, and so where you have this combination happening, you, I mean, we have 80% of our population confesses to be Christian, but it's not all nominal. We have massive uh, independent black churches in our country. So I don't know. I haven't really thought a lot about that question, but those are some of the thoughts I would have. Those are interesting reflections. You know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking that the New Testament clearly portrays that it was in multicultural contexts that yeah. the propagation of early Christianity really thrived. Places like Antioch, obviously Corinth was a very multicultural place, Ephesus, a similar type place, even Jerusalem, you know, Jews came from all over the world to worship there. Yeah. So, you know, Rome. So it does seem to be that the kind of melting pot phenomenon yeah. in ways that we may not fully understand or appreciate helps with the acceleration of the gospel. Yeah, I think you're right. That'd make an interesting doctoral thesis for somebody, not me, but anyway, there we go. We'll leave it out there for somebody to pick up. All right. Um, so, um, You've seen some incredible stuff and you're in, as we say, maybe the autumn years of life. Although, you know, as you were talking, I just want to say this, Derek, um, the scripture came to mind. Speaking of Joshua, the high priest, 
in the post-exilic prophetic literature, is not this man a brand snatched from the burning? Mm. And I think that that would be true of you. Um, not that, <laughs> not that being a farmer is bad. Not that everything in the Anglican Church was ruination, but you could have ended up in a very pedestrian life and possibly sidelined. You could have taken on board all of that uh, philosophical teaching, but you didn't. Um, the Lord interrupted that, interdicted it, really would be a better way to say it. And, uh, you know, you had these experiences with the Holy Spirit, and then you were introduced to all of these people, and you, well, you you landed where you have. And I, I just, you know, the, the Lord goes on, and he says that he's going to put um, Joshua into a place of honor and nobility uh, for as long as he honors the ways of God and presumably he did and I, I don't think there's any doubt that you're going to do the same and I just I just want to say that um, I think this is the word of the Lord to you that mm. uh, what you have seen is not all that you are going to see I, I don't want to do what everybody does and make it a superlative oh you ain't seen nothing yet it's going to get even better well it might yeah. but but I will just say you've not seen all that you're going to see and there's the Lord likes to be Jehovah sneaky sometimes, and he keeps a few cards up his sleeve. And I think before your life is played out, you are going to, I think you're going to find great satisfaction and dare I say it, joy, uh, maybe overwhelming joy at the things you're going to see God doing over the next few years. So, you know, just continue well, doing what you're doing. <laughs> that's encouraging. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, having given you the word of the Lord, uh, tell us about the mentorship that you're currently doing with Vineyard Leaders. I have to confess, when I found out that you were working with a lot of the young leaders by Zoom and having these teaching and mentoring groups, I was kind of jealous, and I thought, I want to be in that. That would, sounds like it'd be really fun. Um, but yeah. tell us about what you're doing, because I think one of the things people don't really think enough about is how do we raise new leaders for the next generation? What does that look like? Yeah, so look, I need to be clear. I am formally retired. You know, I was the Dean of Vineyard Institute and I was in VBI and all that. And I'm, I'm retired now. I don't have any formal role. And so what I'm doing is not in any way a formal education program or training program. It's personal mentorship. I want to leave behind with enough, well, as many as I can, leaders of the next generation. I want to give them everything I've learned in my whole life on kingdom theology and praxis. You know, one of my concerns is even though we've tried hard to reflect kingdom theology in our various courses and stuff like that, I don't know that all of our leaders have got the whole legacy of Wimber and the kingdom theology that is part of that legacy. So I want to really kind of brainwash a remnant, if you like, in the hope that they will carry this better than me and way beyond me into the next generation. And that's my, that's my vision. So Maybe I should just say quickly how it started. I, a couple of years ago, almost simultaneously, I had a number of young men start connecting with me and wanting to relate. One started reading my books and the other um, 
was a was a new young pastor that I started getting to know. And eventually one guy phoned me in the in the beginning of COVID and he said, Look, I don't know who you are, but I got your name in a dream. And I woke up and I knew I had to call you. And uh I listened to him for a bit and he was in an independent charismatic church. And I realized that what he wanted was, well, actually I invited him to come and sit on my veranda because we weren't allowed to, you know, in COVID, we weren't allowed to um, be within proximity. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there were six or seven of them and they, many of them didn't know each other. And I thought the Lord said to me, look, this is not a coincidence. Here's a group of young leaders and they want mentoring. And it sort of came looking for me. I, I didn't conceive of this. So I said to them, look, what if each of them, one by one, what if we formed a group and I told them about the others and I introduced them to each other and I said, what if I start mentoring you? And actually in the beginning, I, I kind of flew by the seat of my pants. I didn't quite know what I was doing. But, it, and these are all, you know, young emerging preachers pastors all within one eventually went off to ethiopia and he did his thought because he was doing his phd here and it went exceptionally well i then thought to myself i could do this elsewhere around the world because of all the experience i've had with online training you know i started doing online training long before zoom was ever heard of i i knew the mechanism or the methodology of how to use it and so really that's where the whole idea was born and I've just finished in March last year, the first two-year cycle, and I've now started a new two-year cycle. And I, first cycle, I had a group in, in um, Latin America, another in Australasia, another in Europe, one in the U USA, and I had one in South Africa. And now again, I've got USA, um, Australia, Europe. South Africa. I think I'm getting better at doing it. I'm learning from, you know, the groups. They they teach me how to do it and we learn together. So it's it's very much under the radar, Ken. It's not, it's not anything out there official. It's small numbers. I said, you know, from the beginning, I want to have a personal relationship with them. And I think I can handle maximum, you know, 35 to 40 people worldwide. And that's what I'm doing. Um, and I, I have them in groups of six to eight basically time zone determined um, clusters. And I just work them through the whole, all that I've written, but also other leading contributors to our theology, you know, from Oscar Kuhlmann, who influenced Ladd through to N.T. Wright today and all sorts of people like that. And I just want them to get the whole thing, you know? Yep. So, you know, that word that was given to Joshua, um, the Lord said, I will give you charge of my courts. And, mm. you know, in kind of an interesting way, you are living out what Jesus said, that the kingdom is like leaven that works its way through a whole lump of dough. You're yeah. seeding in, you know, 35 to 40 people kind of at a shot. And then when you finish that time, presumably you find some more, maybe not always the same number, but you are in the process of well taking charge of the courts of, of influencing a movement worldwide and having a voice far beyond the voice that you have and when you're gone people will carry on in your footsteps so i i mean i just love what you're doing it's so humble it's so accessible you know it's not flash and dramatic 
but you know, as John Wimber used to say, it's naturally supernatural and uh, it's all coming to pass. I mean, it's just, it's very inspiring to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, and my delight is to see some of these people, what it does to them. I mean, I could mention names, but just the way their preaching has changed, the way the sense of, of authority, the things of the kingdom has changed. So that is an absolute delight to me. And I must say also, I've got people outside the vineyard. I've got some new wine leaders mm-hmm. in Europe. I've got other leaders from independent charismatic church networks that are kind of leaning towards the kingdom and want it. I don't care if they're vineyard or not. I just want to have a generation that gets the ministry and message of Jesus, you know? Yeah. Amen. Well, at the end of the day, that is what it's all about. And we're not partisans here. Although a lot of these movements, they're kind of like first and second cousins to one another with one common ancestor. They are, yeah. (laughs) So uh, anyway, well, Derek, this has been a fantastic conversation and and a great interview. I'm, as I said, so pleased to be able to introduce you to those who follow this podcast. Thank and uh, it's just also nice just to have a chance to catch up with you live. Um, yeah. At different times, I've tried to do that. And between your schedule and mine, it hasn't worked out as well as I would like. But um, I really do appreciate what you're doing. And I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us uh, today on God is Not a Theory. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a privilege. I hear about you all over the world. So I didn't, you know, it's, it's easy to motivate me to do something for you if I can. <laughs> well, we'll have to do this again. Uh, we'll talk about some other matters, but um, expect to get another ping in, the, in a few months. And we'll, I don't want to wear you out and you're busy enough as it is, but I, I will. We'll have you back on the show. And to all of our listeners, again, Grant will be back uh, next week. And so this was a one-off where he had to be away. But thanks for joining us for this episode of God is Not a Theory. And uh, we will see you right back here next week. God bless.